standing in the garden just think think of what we're starting i've been waiting for this day all my life you be dressed up in your finest you We're about to spend the better part of two months talking about love and human relationships. We'll be digging into a book that details the sexual awakening of a young couple. Hardly appropriate for a Sunday morning, is it? Well, we disagree. Songs is a book of love in a world created by a God of love. When it comes to the message of human love, the church has lost her voice. We've stayed quiet and the world has monopolized the message. If we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? The world isn't silent on human love. The Bible isn't silent on human love. So we will not be silent either. Good morning, friends. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Song of Songs, Chapter 2. We are jumping right in. If you need a copy of Scripture, our fine ushers are coming down the aisles right now. Throw your hands up in the air, and you'll be able to follow along with the page number on the screen behind me. And as you are finding Song of Songs 2, let me just give you a real quick update on my family and I. So many of you are aware that nearly two months ago, um, we stood on stage and shared with you that we felt like God was, was directing us, calling us, sending us to Nashville for what reason we didn't know then and we still don't know that reason today. But one of the things that we have been doing is, is been trying to figure out, okay, what is a good transition time frame? When is it time to, to say that we're, we're done? And our, our home has not sold yet, and, uh, but one of the things that in the midst of this is that we have just felt like God has been saying to us that your time at Central is, is coming to an end. And so uh, my last day at Central will be the kind of the last day of October, so I'll be around for the next month, and uh, I've got, including today, three teachings left. So October 23rd will be my final Sunday, so Craig will be up next week. I'll be concluding the Song of Songs and then uh, October 23rd will be kind of my farewell uh, teaching to us as a community. And so just wanted to kind of give you an idea about that. From the time that I shared this with the rest of the leadership that we were leaving to the time I leave is three months. So we felt like that that's been a good transition period. And we're not going for a job. We're not going for anything. We don't even know when we're going now because we honestly thought our house would have been sold by now. But that's just kind of where things are at. So just wanted to update you on that. Um, also, just one other thing before we jump into the teaching today, and that is two weeks ago, I got to do a teaching on the sanctity of singleness in the context of these wedding ceremonies and marriage throughout the biblical text. And I've had a couple of people ask me the same question, which means I must have said something that I didn't intend to say because I've been getting the question, you mentioned something along the lines that we're not going to know who one another is in heaven. Is that true? And I was like, really? Who said that? And they said, well, we thought you said that. And I was like, well, are you disturbed by that? And they said, yes. I said, I would have been disturbed if I would have heard me say that. Um, so my, my whole understanding, I don't know where that came from. I don't know what I said. I'm thinking it was the first service because it's been first service people, but I do believe we're going to know each other in heaven. We're going to know family. We're going to know spouse. We're going to know friends. Uh, and so if that was disturbing to you in any way, that would have been disturbing to me as well. So I did not intend to say that. All right. Now, Song of Songs chapter two, if you are just joining us, wow, you've joined a great series. It's been about sex. It's been about intimacy, it's been about relationships, it's been about marriage, it's been about singleness, and we get to tackle another facet of it today. So come with me to Song of Songs, chapter 2, 
And in Song of Songs chapter 2, we are going to begin in verse 3. The woman is speaking here in the context of covenantal marriage. She's talking about this relationship. Notice what she says in verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. And then check out what she says here in verse seven. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now this phrase that she says here, I'm gonna put up because this actually shows up three times in the Song of Songs. And anytime anything shows up more than once, it's like a blinking red light. Sirens are going off. It says, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And she says here, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Now, if you're like me, you go, that's a little bit odd. Well, this is ancient poetry. Remember, we're talking about this is ancient poetic literature. And in the ancient world, you would make a statement and as a way to emphasize that statement, in a sense, you would call on these witnesses of nature. This is what she's doing here. And by the way, does and gazelles were used in ancient literature to talk about sexual love. So she's trying to emphasize a point here. And her point is, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires or until it is the right time. Now the word love she uses here is the Hebrew word ahava. Let me hear you say ahava. Ahava is a Hebrew word for love. There's lots of words for love in Hebrew, by the way. This one, as most Hebrew words do, carries lots of connotation. This can be talking about God's love for his people. It can be talking about a parent's love for their children. This can be talking about the love that two people have for one another. But the other way that it gets used in connection to what we just said in a relationship setting is that here in the Song of Songs, it is used of sexual passion. So it's used of this idea of coming together in passionate sexual love. Now, come with me to the Song of Songs chapter 8 because the woman here defines this ahava even more. So we mentioned that this shows up three times in the Song of Songs. Song 2, verse 7, which we just looked at. Chapter 3, verse 5 is the second place. And then the third place is here in chapter 8. Notice what she says, verse 3. Very similar language. Here he goes. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So nothing about the does and the gazelles here. That was mentioned again in chapter 3, verse 5, and after you've mentioned a couple times, it's not necessary because, again, her point is, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And she's speaking to the other young women who are not engaging in this kind of a relationship. This is who she is speaking to. Remember, one of the contexts for the Song of Songs is as Craig unpacked the first week, this is largely written to young women on how to handle men. Remember, Proverbs is written to young men. Song of Songs is written primarily to young women. Now, it applies to all of us, but you get why she's saying daughters of Jerusalem. Verse five, the friends speak up. Who is this coming from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And then the woman picks up. Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. And then get this, for love, and she's talking about sensual love, sexual love in the context of covenant marriage, is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So she's now experiencing this sexual love, and she's saying to the other young women, 
Like, do not awake or arouse this love until it is time. And she says, here's why. This kind of love has a power that is as strong as death. Like it is as unyielding as the grave. She talks about it in the context of wealth. She says, listen, if one, all one's wealth was to give for love, it would be utterly scorned. She's like, you can't even buy this kind of power. All of the money in the world doesn't have the power that sexual love has. And then she gives us one more picture. She says in, at the end of verse six, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And I want us just to center on this image for a moment. She says this sexual love is like a raging fire. Many rivers, plural, could not quench this. Now, she's not saying that this kind of sexual love is bad. Quite the opposite. She's saying it is majestic, it is amazing, it is powerful, it is all-consuming, it is full of heat. She is experiencing this in the context of covenantal marriage, and she's saying it is amazing, but she's warning the other women, listen, do not get near this until it's time, because used outside of its proper context, you will get burned. It's that powerful. Notice how one commentator puts this. He says the charge is that the girls should not allow themselves to be aroused sexually until the proper time in person arrives. The natural joy of sexual awakening is ruined by premature experimentation. Thus it is that she adjures them by the doe and the gazelle for a woman to awaken love before it pleases is to deprive herself of the full experience of romance and sexuality symbolized by these graceful animals. She's saying, listen, this thing is good in its proper context, but stay far away from it because it has a power that will draw you in. You know what she's talking about here, don't you? <laughs> she's talking about something called chastity. Now, chastity is one of these words that the older generations will go, yep, we know this word well, and I think I just saw some people in the younger generation go, what is that? All right, we use the word abstinence or no sex before marriage. But when you talk about abstinence, abstinence can mean like abstaining from something. And it could be you're abstaining from food, you're abstaining from sex. It can mean lots of different things. But chastity is this idea of no sex before marriage and fidelity if you are married. It's a purity of heart. It's an all-encompassing understanding of the context with which God has given sex and living purely in light of that reality. Now, as C.S. Lewis rightly said in Mere Christianity, he said this, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. Among the world, this is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues, but interestingly, in many segments of the church today, this is just as unpopular in the church as it is in the world. It's like sex, it's not that big of a deal. Premarital sex, oh, God's not gonna matter about that. Like, this is what God has designed us to do. These desires are good, they're, they're fine, and in many ways we talk about, well, you know, it's just the rationalization about the idea of having sex outside of the context of marriage. But friends, here is the naked reality, okay? The naked reality is this, that from a biblical perspective, it is impossible to defend sex outside of marriage. It is impossible to do. All the mental gymnastics cannot suffice to make a case for sex outside of marriage. So here's what I wanna do in our remaining time today. I want to talk about this idea of chastity. How do we live a life of chastity? What is it that we have to know? What is it that we have to do in order to live this out? And again, I'm not just talking about abstinence. 
Because people can abstain from sex before marriage, but their thought life and everything else can be a total wreck. I'm talking about the entire package. How do we live a life pure before God from a chastity perspective of not having sex before marriage? I'm not going to talk about this in the context of fidelity because most people know that adultery is just not helpful. All right, so we're going to kind of let that one go. And as Craig and I have sought to do throughout this entire series, we want to talk about this in a really, really helpful way. Because oftentimes the way that the church has talked about premarital sex has been, listen, this is not what God desires of you, so don't do it. And in many ways, that's just totally incomplete. It's not very helpful. So we've worked real hard to try to put something together that is really, really helpful and is a way of helping us get into an awareness of how do we live out this well. Come with me to Colossians chapter 1. And whether you are someone who is married or not, I believe that what we're going to talk about is going to be very helpful because there is a pattern with which Paul speaks of tough subject matters such as sexual passion, sexual love. And he does this with a framework that he utilizes for other matters of, uh, of behavior as well. But notice what Paul does in Colossians chapter 1. In verse 15 through 20, Paul has this amazing thing he makes. He starts off and he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He starts off with this just massive view of who Jesus is, that Jesus is this cosmic Lord. He is Lord of all things, and Jesus is cosmic in size. He's talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, helping us to be reminded of who Jesus is. And then after he does this in these five verses, because Paul's already done his normal introduction, he's gotten in, welcomed the community, and now he dives into it. He talks about the supremacy of Christ, and then notice what he does in verse 21. He says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Paul goes, let me tell you about this cosmic Christ. Let's talk about how big in Jesus is. He is the ruler of all. And by the way, you are an enemy. Because of your evil behavior. Because of your sinful nature. But now he has done something for you. Notice how Paul continues this conversation in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So Paul goes, let me remind you of who Jesus is. He is the cosmic Lord of all. You are an enemy of him, but now God has done something for you to reconcile the two of you together. How so? Because Jesus died on the cross. He paid our penalty, and as a result of canceling our sin, we are now made right with God. But then notice how he takes it one step further. Chapter 3, verse 1 Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let me read that last part again. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul says, cosmic Christ, let's remind us all who Jesus is. You are an enemy. But through the work on the cross, God has reconciled you through Jesus' death back to him. But then Paul goes one step further. Listen, as a result of the fact that you have come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, he not only forgave you your sins, but he has actually united himself around you. You are hidden in 
Christ. Your identity is Christ. The reason why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is not just because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, is that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus because Jesus has engulfed us and we are hidden in Christ. That is our identity. And then notice what Paul does in the very next verse. Then he says this in verse five. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Here's the brilliance of what Paul has just done. Is Paul refuses to talk about behavior until he has established identity. You see, until you establish identity, action, behavior, calling, doesn't mean much. Because devoid of the identity, you don't really understand why the behavior needs to be as such. And Paul works really hard to remind us of where our identity lies. That as a child of God, we are hidden in Christ. We have been united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ lives in us. That is our identity. And once you address identity and we understand identity, well, now you can address behavior. And Paul does this all over the place, by the way. He also does this in the book of Ephesians. There are six chapters in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, Paul doesn't make one commandment to God's people. It's all identity, 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 identity. And then you get from the last three chapters, chapters four to verse six, and it's commandment, 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 instruction, instruction, instruction. Why? Because he had to establish identity before he addresses behavior. And he also does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Come with me, because what he does here is incredibly helpful for our conversation today. So we're just a few books to the left. Paul is writing to the Jesus community in Corinth, present-day Greece. And this is what he says in verse 14 and following. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Of course, it's what Paul just said in Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You share the fate of Jesus because Jesus is united to you. You have been united in Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul is speaking to church people here. And in this Greco-Roman world, sexuality was so pervasive. Sex was everywhere brothels were everywhere and people engaged in sexual immorality and in many cases they made the argument well it's it's just casual sex it's not it's not really all that important in the grand scheme of things and Paul addresses that he says wait a minute your identity is in Christ notice how Lewis Smees he wrote a book back in 1994 called Sex for Christians so it's a little bit of an older book but the words are no less true today he says this It does not matter what the two people have in mind. Sex unites them in that strange, impossible to pinpoint sense of one flesh. There is no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. He's saying that when you come together with another, 
You become united. And he quotes this one flesh. Paul quotes the one flesh. This is from Genesis chapter 2. That when Adam and Eve come together, it says, and they will be united, and they will become one flesh. The word united is the Hebrew word devak, and it means to be glued or to be stuck together. That when you come together sexually with someone, you are glued together. You can wash off the bodily fluids, but something still sticks. Now, Paul takes this thing one step further in the argument. It's not just about becoming united to someone else. It's also about whom you're uniting to that someone else. A gal by the name of Lauren Winter, I'm gonna come back to her book in a few moments, but this is from her book called Real Sex. Listen to what she writes. It is so insightful. She's picking up on what Paul is doing here. She writes this. Sex is, in Paul's image, a joining of your body to someone else's. In baptism, you have become Christ's body, and it is Christ's body that must give you permission to join his body to another body. Do you get what she's saying here? She says, if you are a follower of Christ, and you have been united to Christ, then when you unite yourself to someone else, you are uniting Christ to that someone else as well because you have been hidden in Christ. And what Christ doesn't want is to be united in a way that's outside of the boundaries with which he said you can unite your body to. See, this is why when we just engage in sexual activity that is outside the context of what God has set forth, i.e. in covenantal marriage, this has a profound impact on our relationship with Jesus Christ because we are united to Christ. And our fundamental identity is that of a child of God who's been united in Christ because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And it is Christ who gives us permission to join his body and our body, which is united, to another body. Not to mention, if it's hurting our relationship with Jesus, how else it's hurting us and the person that we're uniting ourselves to and those who will be affected by this perhaps our future spouse, if that is something God gives to us. So we've got to understand this is our fundamental identity. And now we need to talk about, so how do we live this out? Because that's the question. How do we live a life of chastity? Because it's much more than just saying, don't do it. (laughs) It's a lot more complicated than that. And the way I want to talk about this is in the context of a phenomenal book, a book called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. I've mentioned this book in the past for another reason, and we talked about something, uh, another aspect of it. But this is one of the most helpful books I have ever read. It's actually a business book, um, but it is applicable across lots of subject matters, and we're going to apply it to chastity today. In this book called Switch, Dan and Chip Heath talk about how does change take place? How do people actually do what they want to do and live life a certain way? And what they do is they pull this metaphor from a uh, University of Virginia psychologist, a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And What Dan and Chip Heath did for this book called Switch is they pulled this metaphor and quoted the guy appropriately, but pulled this metaphor, and the metaphor is around this image of an elephant and a rider, and it's in the context of the two independent systems with which the human brain functions. So we all have a brain, right? We're all here. We've all got a brain, and our brain has two independent systems to it. There is a rational logic side to our brains, and there is also an emotional feeling side to our brains. And the metaphor is in the context that the rational side of who we are is equivalent to the rider on the elephant. But the feelings emotional side is equated with the elephant. Now, From a rational perspective, in this understanding of the conversation we have on chastity, we can sit back and go, okay, 
I understand intellectually that I am a child of Jesus Christ, that I have been united with Christ, that Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. He has united himself to me because my future is contingent upon being connected to Jesus Christ. I understand that. And in the context of the Bible, you can't argue for sex outside of marriage. So from an intellectual, rational standpoint, I understand that this is not something that I should do. But friends, the reality is sexual sin is so pervasive. It is so easy to fall into that trap. Uh, For example, a study was done by Northern Kentucky University, Kentucky University, in 2003. And the study was of students who had signed a pledge, made a vow not to have sex before marriage. And what they were able to determine in this study is that 61% of students who took a pledge not to have sex before they were married had sex before they were married. Of the other 39% who said we did not have sex, 55% of them indicated that they had oral sex, but they did not continue they didn't constitute that as actual sex. So if you take in the oral sex and intercourse, you would say that in this study, 75% of the people who said, listen, I'm a child of God, I know it's not right, and I don't want to do it, 75% had sex before they were married when they set out not to have sex before they were married. From a writer's standpoint, they said, we don't want to do this, and yet they did it. Why? Because there is an elephant. There is a feelings and emotional side to us. Okay? Guys have two minds. One sits above the neck and one sits below the waist. And you know what? Women do as well. We all understand that desire. We understand that sexual allurement because we all feel. We all have an emotional side to us. And this is what's so brilliant about the elephant and the rider is that the rider can only get the elephant moving a certain direction. But when the elephant wants to do what the elephant wants to do, the rider doesn't have a shot. And that's the beauty of how, by the way, this is on how we all make decisions, not just around chastity. This is around all decisions in life, food, entertainment. Everything is driven by these two realities of what our mind is made up. We feel a certain way. This is why we get trapped. Because when we get into certain types of situations, we give in because of how we feel. It's like the rational side of our head gets flipped off the elephant and the elephant charges right ahead. Now here's one of the things that we don't do well. Is that we will say things to people about, if you have sex before you are married, you will feel horrible. You're going to feel awful inside, and that becomes one of the motivation drivers to get people not to engage in premarital sex. But you know what? In some cases, people do feel bad. They feel guilt-ridden. They get done with it, and they go, man, like, I knew I didn't want to do that, but then it just felt right, and now I get to the end of it, and it's like, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But you know what? In many other cases, people don't feel bad. They get done, they go, man, that felt great. Like something awoke inside of me. Like that was, that was fun. That was exciting. Like I remember, like my pastors always said that I would feel horrible, but I don't. I wonder what else they've been telling me that's been a lie. Listen to how Lauren Winner writes about this. So this is the book I was referencing. I, I ended up running, running, I didn't run, I read. <laughs> I read a couple books in, in preparation for this particular topic because this is such a, such a hard topic. 
And this was the best book that I had been recommended and that I read. It's just called Real Sex. And normally I put up a long quote um, on the screen, but this is a really long quote. It's just a paragraph, but it's longer than normal. And I just want you to listen to it. So for those of you visual learners, okay, there's your visual. There's the book cover. For the rest of us, let's just key in on what she says. This is coming from page 89. This is what she writes. She says, in insisting that premarital sex will make you feel bad, the church is misstating the nature of sin and the nature of our fallen hearts. The plain, sad fact is that we do not always feel bad after we do something wrong. To acknowledge that premarital sex or any other sinful act might feel good is not to say that premarital sex is good. It is rather to say that our feelings are not always trustworthy. Our emotions and our hearts were distorted in the fall, which is one reason we need the community of the church and an articulated Christian ethics in the first place. If our feelings could be trusted, if we felt good every time we did something good and felt bad every time we did something bad, we would need neither biblical guidelines of right behavior nor a community to help hold us accountable to those biblical standards. In other words, if we felt lousy every time we sinned, there would be a lot less sinning in the world. And if we felt great every time we did something good and worthy and true, there would be a lot more prayer and giving of charity. She said, just because we feel a certain way doesn't mean it's right. Our feelings can't always be trusted. Rationally, we can say, I don't want to do something. But in the moment, our feelings will take over and it won't allow the rider to do what the rider wants to do. So how do you get the rider and the elephant going the right direction? And that's the third component that the book Switch addresses. It's the idea you've got to shape the path. You have to shape the environment. There was a, uh, a study done uh, in a 2000, and it was done in a movie theater. And this is mentioned in the book Switch. It was a really great research project. It was uh, the study to see who eats more popcorn. And the idea was is that they brought all of these participants into this theater. They gave half of them a large bucket of popcorn. They gave the other half a medium-sized bucket of popcorn. And the question they want to ask is, who would eat more? And they actually weighed every box of popcorn before it was handed to the participant. It was tracked. I mean, these people did an amazing job with the study. But here's what they found out. The conclusion of the study was this, that those who had the larger bag of popcorn ate on average 55% more popcorn than those who had the smaller box of popcorn. That was, on average, an extra 21 hand dips of popcorn. And what they concluded in this study and in a host of other studies that have been done around the same idea is that if you change the environment, you change the behavior. Because the, the writer says, I really shouldn't eat all this popcorn. It's not really good for me. But then you start eating the popcorn and the elephant goes, man, this thing tastes good. I mean, we're in a movie theater. This is just what you do. We've got entertainment and you start eating. And the only thing that changed the behavior was actually the environment itself. When it comes to chastity, to live a life of chastity, you've got to shape the path. You have to address the environment. Because on the one hand, it is about what we know. It's, it's our identity. It's what we believe to be true. It's also to know about our own emotions and how they work. But the third level of this is we got to go, let's help the rider and the elephant and let's shape the path 
that is before us. In fact, this is precisely what the woman is doing in the Song of Songs. When she says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. When she uses the word arouse here, by the way, the word arouse and the word awaken are the same word in Hebrew. It's this word, Ur. you got to like do it in the back of your throat. I'm not going to make you do it, okay? But it's used as the same word, but it shows up in two different forms in Hebrew. This first form that gets translated in English as arouse is what's known as a hiphiel in Hebrew, which just means causative action. So this word means causing love to initially waking. She's saying what you do will cause this sensual love to rise up inside of you. She's saying to women, be careful how you dress. Because when you dress sexually, you will feel sexual. And how you dress will also impact how the gentlemen look at you and what arises in them. She says, be careful about what kind of romance novels you read. What kind of magazines you subscribe to? What kind of music you listen to? What time of night you are out? Because we all know the later it gets, the stupider you get, right? We all know that. There's actually really good reasons why that happens. If you're dating someone, do you take a nap under a blanket? I hear all the time from couples, well, we're not having sex, but we just sleep in the same bed. She's saying, your environment, what you allow yourself to enter into, shapes how you will respond to sexual love. She says, do not arouse or awaken. This is called a polel in Hebrew, which just means an intensified action. This is a word that means repeated efforts to set love in motion. Here's the idea. Gentlemen, when she says no, no means no. Not let's come at this from another angle. Let's keep talking about this. Let's just try to do this a different way. No means no. Don't try to force the issue. Don't try to stir this thing up. And you know what? The same can be said for women as well. Women, when he says no, that means no. See, when it comes to the idea of, of chastity and shaping this path of chastity, we have to set these boundaries we have to recognize that the boundaries will either arouse or awaken love or it will suppress it. It will challenge it in our lives. And we have to be very certain about what these boundaries are. And remember, we're talking about chastity. We're not talking about abstinence because abstinence can mean, well, we're just not having sex. But chastity says, is your relationship pure all the way around? If you start asking questions, well, how far can I go? You're probably not in the realm of chastity. It's what does a whole and pure relationship look like before your Savior with whom you are united to? Set the boundaries. What are we going to do? What aren't we going to do? What time of night? Uh, what things am I going to look at? What kinds of things am I going to hear? What kinds of things am I not going to read? We've got to set the boundaries. Secondly, I just say this, you've got to then be accountable. Because the boundaries can just be a rational thing that we have. But if we don't have someone checking in with us and saying, how is it going? Then we might just bowl right through those boundaries and be right to the place where we said we didn't want to be. Because as we shape this path of chastity, We've got to understand that there are boundaries, but then how can we be held accountable? 
And thirdly, I would just say this, that if you want to shape the path of chastity, invest in your relationship with God. That you go to God in the reading of his word. That you are reminded, man, this is my identity. This is my calling. This is what God has done on my behalf. I have been bought at a price. I am not my own. Christ purchased me from sin and death. Christ died. He purchased me so that we could be united to him and experience life to the fullest both now and in the world to come in which we will know one another in the world to come. (laughs) We come to God in prayer and we say, God, help me. Give me a desire to do something with what you have given to me. That oftentimes the biblical response to sexual desire is not necessarily to shut it off, but how can you rechannel it? How can you repurpose it? How can you give yourself to something that is more powerful than just the sexual drive that you feel if you are not married? God, help me to be faithful to you. This past week I was talking with a friend of mine. I've got a number of single friends that I get to talk to on a regular basis. And I was talking to one of my single friends because it's been a while since I've been single. <laughs> and I was sharing about this topic that I was going to be, be doing today. And we had this really great conversation because I wanted to run this by a single person living a life of chastity to see if there was anything else that, that I needed to know that would be helpful to share because multiple eyes are always helpful when you're putting together any kind of teaching, but particular one of these. And it was a really helpful conversation. And, and later on that day, my friend texted me something. And I asked for permission just to read it, even though you won't know who it was. But just listen to this, because I find this so unbelievably compelling. He says this. For single and celibate people who are trying to live righteously before God, it is very tempting at times to feel like we have been shortchanged by God or given a raw deal. This is why for me, the promises in Scripture, many of which come to us by way of Jesus and Paul, two single guys, are so meaningful because they hold true for all people regardless of marital status. There is no indication whatsoever in the text that single people are exempt from the richest and most meaningful blessings from God. This is why it is not helpful to say to single people, we need to find you a spouse because it is not good for man to be alone. I may be single, but I am never alone. So she writes, daughters of Jerusalem, by the does and gazelles of the field, I charge you, do not awake or arouse love until it is time. It is amazing. In its right context, it is full of power and majesty and goodness because this is from a good God. But don't get near this if the timing is not right. Chastity is trusting that God knows best. That God's not out to ruin our fun. That God loves us and wants the best for us. And we live a life of chastity because we recognize that we are not our own that we belong to Jesus Christ and we trust him with our life. I just want to conclude by just saying a word about grace and forgiveness. Because for many of you, this has not been a great day. You've said, I, I've, I've messed up. Maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you feel a sense of shame. And one of the things that Craig and I said is that the Bible is not about shame. Naked and unashamed, that's what we're aspiring to. Living pure and whole in every aspect of our lives. And for some of us, we're sitting here going, I have not lived the life that you just talked about today. 
Friends, I believe that one of the things that the church has not done well is help people to understand that there is grace and forgiveness for sexual sin. That oftentimes the church raises sexual sin to a level that it's almost unforgivable. Now there is a balance to be struck. This is a weighty issue. It has massive implications for your life, for your life and your relationship with God, your relationship to your friends, to your future spouse, if God so gives that to you. But friends, this is not an unforgivable sin. Psalm 103 reminds us, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That that applies to all areas of life. That when Jesus met the woman who had been caught in sexual failure, he said to her, go and sin no more. Jesus' forgiveness was sufficient to say to her, you can now go live life differently because I have forgiven you. Today is a new day. There is grace, there is forgiveness from God and God looks on our lives and he says, I want the best for you. I want you to live a life of wholeness and health and well-being and I've structured the world to work a certain way and I've given you my word, I've given you my scriptures to help you understand how to live within the boundaries with which I've set. There is great freedom within the boundaries that I have set but I want you to live a healthy and whole life and when you don't get it right, God goes, Let's stand back up. Let's start moving forward. Let's not allow our past to prevent us from moving forward. Now, there may be certain things that we've lost in our past that we can't get back, but that doesn't need to be something that prevents us from going forward. And by the way, the stupidest phrase that I feel like is in our world today around this whole idea of sexual sin is damaged goods. By golly, I couldn't hate a phrase more than I hate that phrase because it is so anti-biblical. You are not damaged goods. That Jesus can heal, that Jesus can restore. The same Jesus who rose from death and conquered sin is able to deal with the faults and failures and brokenness in your life. And that's what he wants to be given the opportunity to do. You are loved. Christ died for you. There is grace and there is forgiveness. And some of you just need to embrace that today. Because there is nothing that God can't forgive us for. Let's pray, shall we? God, thank you for the day. Thank you for the chance to tackle this subject of chastity, to resurrect this word that is such an amazing word. God, I pray today that you have met us anew and that Holy Spirit, you would continue to keep doing a work in us, to be reminded of our identity, to be reminded of how strong sexual passion is, and that God, you would give us the strength and the courage to shape the path that you are asking us to shape. And we pray that in those moments where our strength is not sufficient to do what is right, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us strength to do what we need to do. God, thank you for purchasing us. Thank you for uniting us to you. Thank you that we have hope, Jesus, because we are hidden in you. May we live a life that is reflective of the identity with which you claim to be true of us. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you for the chance to dig into your word today. For it's in your name we pray, amen, amen. Friends, won't we stand and let's just close with a word of blessing. If you would like prayer today, we're going to have people who are up front that would love to pray with you. We have a prayer room off the lobby if you would like to stop in there. We know that a Sunday like this can kind of dredge up a number of things in your life. And if you just need a word of prayer, word of blessing spoken over you personally, by all means, come up or head into the prayer room. But for the rest of us, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and may you experience his shalom, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his charge to keep moving in the direction he is asking you to do. Grace and peace be with all of you. See you next Sunday. Take care.